Uh, hi, this is Bill. I am sitting in a room different to the one you are in now. Uh, I suppose first of all is I'm sort of a published academic now. Well, hey, congratulations, man. Cheers, man. I uh, yeah, I gave a paper at a conference in Wrocław in Poland last year. And about three weeks ago, I got the book with the proceedings of the conference with all of the papers published in it. I got it in the mail. So it's nice to see something I've written in a sort of a physical form that has gone out to a lot of other academics as well. That's really, really cool. What, what was this paper uh, called? Well, the, the conference was Sound Ambiguity, which was a sort of a quite general and vague title, and you could make of it what you will. Uh, and I decided to do a paper on examining polystylism in metal and hardcore and oh. why why metal and hardcore punk are actually quite closely related as opposed to opposed as a lot of kind of popular ideas of music would, would, would say that they're, they're kind of diametrically opposed and that they're not sort of monolithic sounds they're not generically monolithic they they have always had a history of taking from other genres and taking influence from other places and that's not something I really see acknowledged very much, and I couldn't find beforehand any real scholarship dealing with it. So I just wrote a little history of it and brought up some issues, and I suggested kind of future ways to examine it. I would naturally say that hardcore seems to draw from places. That seems obvious to me. Yeah, well, what kind of thing are you thinking of? Like, I suppose, well, how are you, what is hardcore? How are you defining hardcore? Like hardcore punk. Yeah, so punk naturally draws from like ska and reggae and things like that, you know? Not really, no. The, no? The, they're fusion <laughs> genres would, would be kind of the, the popular perception of things. But I kind of make the point that the fusion genres have been there all along, that they're not just kind of later editions, that, you know, Bad Brains were there at the start of the DC punk scene. Okay, all right. Oh, that's really interesting. And, and tell me, how was this paper received? It depends on the specific members of the audience because it was it was quite a it was a conservatory it was a music academy so there was a some conservative elements of the faculty who were what the hell is this about oh right and then okay. some others and some of the students were like oh well this is really cool to hear to hear about this you know in what's normally a conservative sort of place so much of the other work presented uh, on that day in Poland was was classical music in, in nature yeah yeah I mean like broad church classical like. There was, a, I think, there was two papers on John Cage, and then there was ones about sort of musicology in general and right. sort of, uh, analytical musicology and stuff. But there, there wasn't a huge amount dealing with po- uh, popular music. No. Okay, so you're definitely out in your own little boat there. Little bit. Cool. That's really cool. I'm always in favor of someone pushing boundaries a little bit, you know. Um. So I haven't actually put the paper up on my blog yet. I'm considering whether to sort of rewrite it in a more journalistic style rather than the sort of academic one that I originally submitted it in. But it'll be up on my blog sometime soon, hopefully. I don't think you should rewrite in the popular style, though. Like, I read the first page of your paper, and even though it's written in an academic style, it's very, very accessible, very easy to read. Oh, from from the photo I had on Facebook? Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. Um, So I think you should keep it in its pure form, and I think people will definitely be able to get it, you know? Great. I'll, uh, I'll send it on to you and see what you think. Oh, please do. That would be great. So that was the first thing. In other sort of adventures of academia i am going to helsinki in june oh very cool for a week yeah Uh, i'm going to a conference the modern heavy metal conference which is on for a week and there's 
various different people giving papers and talks about different topics in the field of metal studies. There's going to be a keynote speech from Scott Ian from Anthrax. Wow. Yeah. Uh, he's speaking at one point, and a few other people like from industry and stuff, and there's there's a couple of gigs involved as well. There's a very good Finnish punk band called Lost Society are playing one of the nights. And yeah, it looks it looks like it'll be really, really interesting. And at that, I'm giving my paper on the metal scene in Botswana, which is an interest of mine. Oh, and this is a different paper from the one that got published. This is a different one from the, the paper that I, I wrote for Poland, yeah. This is uh, about... There, there's a very uh, interesting and very active metal scene in Botswana. And I, it's a lot of interesting music there. And it kind of raises a lot of ideas about... Metal is often seen as an exclusively white and exclusively Western form of music, but that's yeah. not really the case. Um, so it's interesting, first of all, from that point of view, but also the way it's been discussed in the media is, is interesting and I, I think kind of worrying. You know, if you read articles like from CNN or whatever about it, they project this idea of what Africa should be like onto it. So they use words like tribal and they say there's a deep spiritual connection with the land. And that's not really supported by the way the participants themselves talk about the scene. So there's a sort of a, a cultural kind of racism going on with how it's discussed. Yeah, but that's that's always the case. Like, like you can never rely on popular media to deliver a proper narrative of what's going on in any part of the world, you know? That doesn't change the fact that it should be noted and discussed, though. Yeah, absolutely. No, no. And it's up to more enlightened people to discuss these things. But uh, the news is a flawed medium, and it always will be a flawed medium. We have oh, to, yeah. We have to rely on independent journalists uh, and writers like yourself to be able to deliver a correct narrative. Well, I wouldn't say there's, you know, I can deliver a correct narrative. All I can do is point out the, the ways in which the the mainstream narrative is not supported by the participants' own speech and the participants' own reportage of what they do. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just like, hey, there's kind of problems here. Can we maybe not do this? <laughs> um, what got you into uh, writing about Botswana in the first place? Like, it's a very uh, odd choice. Last year, actually just over a year ago, it was on April 11th last year, uh, there was a conference at the university I was attending at the time in York in England, and the topic of the conference was metal and marginalization. So it was tackling this idea that metal is seen as an outsider style and an, an outsider interest, but it is primarily straight white male participants who are kind of, you know, the, the people with the most privilege. Mm. And why was that? And so it was about, you know, is this really the case? And... If it is the case, why is it the case? And in when it's not the case, let's look at that. You know, let's look at people that aren't straight white men in metal and how they fit in and their own kind of discussions of things. Judas Priest, not straight yeah. white metal. That's probably the only example I can give. Yeah, one of the very, very few queer performers in metal, yeah. Yeah. Huh. The the only other kind of reasonably famous guy I could think of is uh Gal from, uh, well, he was originally in Gorgoroth, and then now he's in King of Hell, I think. He's a black metal musician. Okay, I have no idea. Have you, I'm sure I've shown you the video before of an interview with a, a black metal guy from a film. Uh, it's from Metal, The Headbanger's Journey. And the interviewer says, you know, what are the main, the main influences, the main driving forces behind Gorgoroth's music? And, you know, this metal guy sitting there with his big beard, his big long hair, and he's got a goblet of wine in his hand. And there's a <laughs> big, long silence. And he picks up the goblet, and he sips it, and he puts it down, and he says, Satan. 
<laughs> and that's it. <laughs> Class. Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> but hold on, you haven't actually explained why Botswana, first of all. Oh, sorry, yeah. So so this, this conference was on, and I had been aware that there was a scene in Botswana, and I thought, well, you know, that might be interesting if you're talking about marginalization and the predominance of you know, straight white men, this is a counterexample to that, that because most of the participants in Botswana are black. Yeah. So I thought that, well, that would be an interesting thing to look at as a, a contrast to the, the popular image of metal as being exclusively white and also exclusively Western, because, you know, this is in sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool, very cool. And they have a very interesting, from what I remember of your paper, they have a very interesting sort of aesthetic over there in terms of how they deal with, with metal. It's, it's, is it, it's very kind of like cowboy-esque sort of thing. Yeah, that, that's one of the things that has gotten the most attention. They um, have this distinct style of dress, and it's sort of a lot of leather and uh, cowboy boots and cowboy hats. And part of the reason behind that could well be that a lot of them are literally cowboys. Like, they, they herd cows for a living. Right, okay. Um, it's something quite striking, and a lot of the attention the scene has got is from the work of a South African photographer called Frank Marshall. Okay. Who took took these portraits of them, and he published them in a exhibition called Renegades. Oh, I remember you showed me these pictures. They're beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Really, really interesting, uh, really cool portraits. Mm. But what's interesting is at, at, at first, people refused to believe that it was real. They, they insisted that Frank Marshall had staged them because, well, oh, this is clearly ridiculous. You know, you couldn't have all these black guys into metal. That was the ridiculous and point for them, not the letter in sub-Saharan Africa. That's what I found ridiculous, the wearing of letter in sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah, well, maybe maybe that was part of it. But the other issue then is that a lot of times when people do look at the scene in, in Botswana, they only talk about the the fashion. They don't they don't say, oh, you know, look, the music is interesting, or you know, any of the actually interesting things that are, that are happening there in terms of metal. It's just it's turned into the sort of like novelty sideshow, which is problematic in its own way. And it is the style over there. Is it a, is there a vibrant style over there, or is it mimicking very much what we do here in the West? Like, do you mean musically? Musically, yeah, yeah, not aesthetically. There, there isn't a clear single musical sound, um, which is interesting in its own right. Because if you know a, a lot of the history of kind of localized scenes in metal, has been that you know, there was an area that had a particular sound, like yeah. Gothenburg melodic death metal, or yeah. Florida had death metal and. Um, you know, there are, there are other similar examples, uh, black metal in Norway. Um, here, there's two main styles. There's sort of death metal, uh, with a lot of kind of old school death metal. And then there's kind of traditional heavy metal, you know, Iron Maiden kind of stuff. Okay. So they're both quite successful. I think death metal is slightly more popular, but the two most successful bands, there's one in each style. There's Skinflint, who are more sort of straightforward, just heavy metal. And then there's Rust, who are death metal and they've got kind of other influences as well kind of groove and thrash influences as well but is it are they are they pastiching what what is going on like are, are they all pastiches of uh their western counterparts or is botswana developing a botswanan sound even though it could be varied is there is there something no, the, distinctive about the botswanan sound uh not yet i don't think i don't think there is there is yet it, it may well develop its own sound so how, I mean, I, uh, sorry, so for how, how long has metal been a thing in Botswana? Well, there was a band, a kind of a, a hard rock heavy metal band called Nosy Road, who've been around since the 70s. And then oh, there's wow. metal, metal Horizon, who have been around since the 90s. 
but the kind of the the big upsurge seems to be from about the early 2000s maybe 2005 it's hard to tell because you know it's very difficult to access sources and some of the bands give different dates for when they started all right I, th- I think like Skinfin say on, on their Facebook that they started in 2006 and then on their website say they started in 2005. Great. That's very helpful. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and like a lot of them don't have uh, particularly strong internet presences. So it's hard to, it's hard to just go and look it up. Yeah. Yeah, of course. So it's a, so over there it's very much uh, in its infancy and it could develop into a very distinctive type of method. I don't, I'm not sure if I'd say if it's in its infancy, it's just, it's doing its own thing. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'd, I'd describe it as pastiche either, because I don't think we'd say that if someone started a thrash band in Dublin, we wouldn't call them a pastiche of thrash. They'd just be a thrash band. No, of course. Yeah, no. I'm not. I'm not labeling them as pastiches. I was just merely trying to clarify in my head um, what's going on over there. Yeah, you know, that's really cool. That's it's a very interesting topic. I when you first brought this up uh, with me, I thought you were a little bit insane to do this. <laughs> <laughs> but you no, know, it turned out great like fair dues man it's good thank you yeah really really cool and it's really cool that you're being uh celebrated and like helsinki and getting published like like epic epic stuff you know i wouldn't wouldn't say being celebrated now but <laughs> well you were invited Cheers. to go you're invited to go speak at a conference that's quite the achievement you know well, well mm, i wasn't exactly invited i mean i applied and i have to pay to go but still oh you were yeah, oh good. i was in the impression you're invited no, 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 no. Like, I applied to do it. I had to send in, like, my, my paper and everything, and it was evaluated, and... All right, well, what you call... I'm going to cut out the bit where you say that you're not invited. I will leave invited in, because that sounds no, please good, don't. Right? Please don't. <laughs> so is there anything else fun going on in Bill's life? We have uh, papers being published. We're off to Helsinki, and we have written a thing about Botswana and metal. Anything else going on? Um, not much. No, I've, just, I've been working hard, uh, doing a lot of teaching, a lot of composing... Actually, this this will be of interest to some of the listeners, I suspect. I recently wrote something for uh, another Redditor on the world-building subreddit. Oh, cool. Yeah, it was uh, Wrestles Bears, user Wrestles Bears. Okay. Uh, there was a thread about, I think it was about drugs in their settings. And this user, they mentioned that they had opiates were, were quite common or a problem in one of their countries. And there was a folk song about you know the, the problem of, of opiates called Kiss of the Poppy. And so so I got talking to them about it and we had a little bit of back and forth and they sent me the lyrics. So I wrote up a little air to go with it. So that was quite fun. Cool. And you wrote it in sheet music form and in uh, and there was an audio recording as well. Yeah, I mean I just I, I just sat at the piano and uh, you know I played a sort of I was going for a sort of nineteenth century or early twentieth century music hall kind of vibe. They had said they had thought of it as a sort of an Irish folk tune, and there's you know a fair bit of overlap between those two. Oh, here so... the, when you showed it to me, I immediately thought Irish folk tune. Great, great. Yeah, really did. I mean, like you stuck it in. I I won't get too musicy here for the listeners, but uh, you stuck it in D major, and it was in six eight. Like, <laughs> like how like you can't get more Irish than that. Like, yeah, and it opened with a, a leap of a major sixth. Yeah. So that yeah that that was that was quite fun. I just sat down at the piano and I kind of improvised it and worked it out to fit in with the with the words they had given me. Um, then I wrote it up in cheap music, and then I did a kind of a, a MIDI mock-up with a, a, a synth violin, or a sampled violin sound. So I was I was pretty pleased with it. It's something I might like to work on a little bit more if, if they would be interested in it. Cool. I'm sure, I'm sure people would be, you know. And was it received well? Yeah, they seem to really like it. 
cool. That's good. That's good. Uh, there's nothing worse when you make something and the person has to go, actually, <laughs> yeah. not quite good enough, you know? I had been a little worried about that, but, you know, it was just it was a few minutes work and it was it was distracting me, but keeping me productive while I was doing a lot of other uh, difficult composing. So, um, you know, if, it, if they hadn't liked it, I suppose it wouldn't have been the end of the world. Yeah, you weren't pinning everything on that, you know? And hey, it's a folk song. Folk songs come in different versions. So, you know, even if they didn't like it, that doesn't mean it's not a valid version of it. That, that's really true. That's a really good bit of lore. Like, they should, even if they didn't like they should have just kept it anyways to be like, you know, this the southern region of this country <laughs> yeah. play, plays Where the like music this. is crap. <laughs> uh, but that's really cool. That's really, really cool. So we are now live, Bill. Someone has clicked play and uh, we're talking. Yeah, hello there, listener. <laughs> the one listener. Actually, do you know what's surprising? We have more than one listener, which is quite amazing. I'm not surprised by that at all. We're brilliant. Well, part of this combination is brilliant, and I still maintain <laughs> that that part is not me. But anyways, yeah. <laughs> uh, the yeah, we we have a couple of hundred listeners. Great. Which which is great. I had a metric to determine the success of this launch based on people similar to me that do YouTube videos and have podcasts. And, right. And I scaled that metric down for this project and we surpassed it by a long shot. Great. Which is really cool. Like by like two, three X surpassing it. Brilliant. Nice one. So oh, congrats um, us. Congrats. I was about to say you're involved too, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, that's really cool. Uh, and it seems like it was well received. Yeah. The feedback has been good so far uh, based on what people have said to me in person and what has been said on the the subreddit, which is slash or slash artifexian for anyone who hasn't been there yet. Yeah, every all the comments seem to have been really good, really positive, you know, and I think people did really appreciate the uh, greater diversity of artifexian content, mm-hmm. um, which is really great, really good. Going forward, do you see us diversifying even more into, into different media, into different industries? Yeah, yeah, I, I reckon we'll set up a, a what you call it, a production company. Yeah, yeah, I think we'll do that, and then uh, we might we might launch, we might buy up entire radio stations. Well, I mean, I, I I was thinking maybe stepping even a little bit further outside the box. Like, what about an artifexian cologne? Uh, what, what's a oh, like like a scent? Yeah, like artifexian aftershave. <laughs> That'd be brilliant, and we could or, have a, you know, a line of tin foods. Yeah, well, I, I was thinking like like frozen ready meals, but I suppose tin, tinned is, is, is just as good. Yeah, no, actually, with frozen is much classier. I think yeah. we should go with frozen, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then I suppose we should also try and uh, like talk to the folks over at SETI and uh, see, can we uh, broadcast artifexing out into the cosmos? Um, yeah. Because I feel, like, I feel like the extraterrestrials need to hear this. I mean, this is some quality quality recording going on right here well even more than that i think that their insight you know and their different ideas about culture and their you know entirely independent biological structure would be of of great value to us their viewpoints would you know help us really diversify what we can talk about this is this is true bill this is true um i look forward to the day where we get alien comments It'd be great. I have the aliens on the subreddit. It'd be awesome. Um, all right. Anyhow, where were we before you, you took me off on that one? Uh, <laughs> what, what was I saying beforehand? <laughs> so a really interesting comment from the subreddit that I just want to quickly talk about is that a Redditor commented that the little snoo on the top left-hand corner should have a beard. 
<laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> and I want to assure that redditor uh, that the beard is going to come. This is Brilliant. this is a thing that will happen. The the subreddit is very much in construction phases at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, because a really kind redditor called uh, Stop Motion Manager offered to help us out with the uh, graphics on the subreddit. And so I've pretty and much it's looking really really good. So I'd like to thank Stop Motion Manager as well. Yeah, he's he's done a really really great job. It's a nice aesthetic. It's it's similar to both the rest of Reddit and the actual Artifexian website. It's it's a nice kind of uh, mix of the two. Yeah, and um, he is still working on it, which is great. It's not in any way finished. Uh, and it's really, really kind of him because he's in the middle of studying. And whenever he gets a chance, he does a little bit of work on the graphics on the subreddit. So it's very much a project that would probably take quite a bit of time to do. Mm-hmm. So, which is great. And I love logging on and waiting and seeing is there any changes and discussing stuff. Uh, so thank you, Stop Motion Manager. And then there's more actually on the subject of graphics, Bill. Yeah. Uh, I want to thank uh, XX Online Man XX uh, <laughs> for one having a an amazing YouTube name and two for taking uh, some of my logos from the YouTube channel and uh, rendering them in 4K. Oh wow! Yeah, which is really cool. The ba- new banner on the Ar- on the Artifacting YouTube channel is that logo in 4K, and he is also designed an A, a new A, which I've yet to put up, but that'll also go up. So. XX online man XX thank you as well really really cool work oh I'm, I'm looking at the at the logo here now this is the, this is your the the a with the the lines in the circles that you use for everything yeah the om thing the, okay that it, it is publicly disclosed that that was om I wasn't sure if that was a, a kind of a, an Easter egg to be hidden no um, no someone asked that and I answered it in the uh, thousand subscriber special oh okay so you did so you did um, yeah, it's it's looking really good. Is that like a is that a, an SVG or something? It's it's a really really oh, clean graphic. I can't remember the file, but yeah, it's very very clean. Um, yeah. And it's really cool. It's really really cool. And it's amazing that people will give up their free time to do graphics for me, like or for us actually. Now that you're involved, like it's just bizarre. It's great. It's, that it's pe- flattering. <laughs> it's brilliant. It's amazing, and it's so cool that people like um, like the content enough to want to give up their free time. So. Like, it blows my mind, and and thank you so much, people, you know? And also, we need to say thanks to everyone who got involved in discussing on the subreddit as well, which is awesome. Yeah, it's been great so far. It was was very active there when we launched first. Yeah, definitely. And a lot of people messaged, uh, well, at least messaged me privately, uh, saying they'd love to help out with things, which, again, we need to thank those people as well. Like, we turned them away uh, because, I mean, like, this is a small subreddit, you know, so two people can handle the workload. Um, mm-hmm. they've been great and they've like gotten in front of house, been involved with the comments, really active, thriving thing. Like it's amazing. Uh, it really means so much. And it's, it's so helpful when people do come and get involved and help build a community there. You know, that's, that's, it's something that you've achieved to a great extent on your YouTube channel. And, you know, it's great to see something similar nascent on the Reddit. Yeah, def- definitely. Like that would be, if I could make two valid communities. Awesome. Finally, one last thank you, Bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I feel like I should really do this now. Uh, I, and I meant to do this last episode, but I forgot. Uh, we need to thank a mutual friend of ours. Who's that? Uh, Mr. Theodore Radu. Oh, of course. Uh, for making the little, the little bing sound in the podcast. The bloops in between the sections. The little bloops in between the sections. Uh, Theo is a uh, mutual friend of ours. We studied with him uh, in college. He is a very good musician 
and a very good composer. And again, he took some time out of his really hectic uh, schedule to make some uh, little silly noises for me. And uh, I just really want to say thank you to Tio as well. Uh, I will link to uh, his website in case anyone wants to check out his music. And his SoundCloud as well. He's a SoundCloud, I think. He has SoundCloud as well, yeah. And he has a YouTube channel as well. Oh, does he? Yeah. It's it's not very active, but there's a couple of really whopping pieces of music on there. So I'll link to all these. I think people should definitely go over and have, have a listen. Boom, subscribed. Have you subscribed? I have. <laughs> I, I'm a really big fan of his electronic music. I think he does electronic music so well. From what I remember, yeah, I mean, I haven't, I haven't heard anything new in a while, but from from what I remember, he was always good. Yeah, he's he's just up to his eyeballs trying to do his masters. Of course, yeah. And um, uh, he was telling me that the uh, stress of trying to do it in London is just like overwhelming. Yeah, it's a crazy city to live in. I'd say everyone I've talked to so far who has moved over there, they've just been like, "This is just mental. This place is ridiculous." Mm. Um, and so stressful like and a lot of them are like I really like the opportunity of being over in one of the most thriving cities in the world but at the same time I, I kind of wish I was back home where life is just a little bit more you know chill yeah final thing um, people who listen to the podcast uh, like I just want to ask um, and implore people that if they enjoy the podcast and in fact even if they don't enjoy the podcast uh, <laughs> can they leave a review on the iTunes store because that would really help us out and it would really help any like new listeners who come to us who stumble across us on iTunes uh, get a feel for what it's about. So any reviews would be awesome and would really go a long way to getting this uh, podcast really going. That would be very helpful. Very, very helpful. And uh, I'll read them all personally, the reviews, so make them funny. <laughs> like, <laughs> make them accurate obviously like you know don't don't give me like one star reviews if you you know just to like annoy me make them funny and i'll have a read of them and we might we might read out some hilarious ones on air you know definitely okay right so um anything else to follow up there bill uh no i don't think so i think you, you've covered it all just thanks very much to the community that have been so so helpful and so supportive so far and to all of the nice things people have said and to all of the 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 ways people have helped us out. So you've started doing an entirely new topic on your channel. Uh, at the time of recording, the first video was up, and you're talking about languages, specifically conlanging. I am. Yeah, scary, scary new territory for me. <laughs> I'm I'm really looking forward to this because it's an area that I've been quite interested in for a while, but never really found a way to get into. And th- there's a lot of things that I, I'd like to know more about when tackling it you know I'd, I'd like to for years i've wanted to just find the time to sit down and learn the ipa but i i've never actually gotten around to that so i'm assuming that's something that's going to be covered soon enough the ipa looks like it's going to be the next video great like how to learn the ipa i'm not looking forward to that video and um, the ipa is dull as hell it really is <laughs> like it's like it's a necessary evil for conlanging mm. Um, but it re- oh god it's it's just it's it's just it's so dull so dull um, but yeah the, the series I've always quite liked the idea of learning it to be honest I'm kind of looking forward to it it's very subjective the okay. IPA and it's kind of almost like they try and impose a structural rigour on it when that's really not the case okay and that can be a bit frustrating sometimes like sometimes you'll you'll make a sound or hear a sound and trying to cram it into the IPA framework doesn't always work. Okay. And that can be a bit, bit infuriating. And as well as that, it's just 
when learning the IPA, just the language that goes along with it is really cumbersome. Like the, the different ways of describing all the sounds, like dental fricatives and stuff. Exactly, like like the B sound, like in bear. You know, lay yeah. people will say it's a B sound. The IPA people will say that it's a uh, was it a voiced bilabial plosive? Yeah. yeah. So that can be really cumbersome to get at, and mm. especially when you deal with the non-English sounds, like like glottal sounds. Uh, <laughs> Very good. I see what you did there. What did I do there? You said glottal sounds. Oh, I said glottal with a glottal stop. Instead of glottal, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't say glottal the correct way. I always say it with a glottal stop. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's quite meta, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it just inadvertently meta? Accidental meta. Um, but yeah, when you talk about glottal sounds or uh, fran- pharyngeal, pharyngeal sounds, I, I have to look up pronunciation before I make this video. It The, the language is, is, is tough going, you know? Which, which are the pharyngeal sounds? They're a set of sounds that are hardly used in human speech. They involve right back in the back of the throat. Um, oh, okay. They like if you look at the IPA chart, a lot of the pharyngeal section. I really hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Is just completely blacked out, like impossible for humans to make. Cool. Uh, so I'm dreading when I have to top of that. Um, <laughs> but but it's been this will be an interesting adventure down the Conlang Road. Mm-hmm. A- and so far, it's been very well received. Um, people have really liked it and a lot of people have uh, sent me their thanks saying that uh, it's great that I'm not doing space. Which is kind of like, (laughs) I feel bad about that because I'm like, I really like space. I want to keep doing space. So I just want to, like, I suppose publicly say that the space building will continue alongside the conlanging. You're you're intending to kind of alternate between the two or are you going to finish the conlanging and then return to space or... Oh god, no, the con langing again is going to take like all the time. Okay. Um, so yeah, probably just hop between the two. So I because I suppose then I could get like uh, two separate audiences on Artifact Scene. Mm-hmm. You know, you get like your geofiction people, and then you get your people who like the more uh, human side of uh, world building. And yeah. you know, they're they're at least once every two weeks or so. There could be a show there that they would like if I alternate. Yeah. So yeah. And and it also it, it like helps keep me fresh as well because sometimes I I can be staring at a subject for so long, and being like I like I don't want to learn anything else about dwarf plants. I've been at dwarf plants for four weeks. I need, this <laughs> needs to stop, you know. Um, so I think it's going to help keep me sane as well. Yeah, I can see that. So what what did you think of the video, by the way? I liked it. I liked it very much. Um, there's a a few things I I would say in in terms of. In, in terms of being slightly more rigorous about it. I, I know what you're doing is going for a practical route to make languages, to make languages that are spoken in settings. Mm. Um, but there's, there's a few, just to be pedantic, there's a few little like um, nitpicks I could make. Oh, go for it. So you give the, the list of things that are necessary for making a conlang. The, the six steps. The six steps. And one of those is the creation of a script. Yes. Which I wouldn't fully agree with, because for the most part, if you're writing, you know, if you're just writing a, a book and you want to have the language in it, you're going to just type it in the Latin script. Yeah. You, don't, the- you won't have to create a new one. So it, it's not necessary. And in, from another point of view, it kind of privileges the idea that literary societies are more valid than non-literary societies, because a lot of languages don't have any written form. Yeah, like the oral tradition is a perfectly valid tradition. I I totally accept that. 
I, I will say that the hour tradition doesn't really come into play in conlanging that much. You know, because I mean, like, you're going to want to try and communicate your language to other people. And unless, you know, you as the creator of your conlang have time to go around and speak to everyone in your language, that's not going to happen. You're going to need to write it down, you know? Yeah, you are going to need to write it down, but you will probably be doing that in English, like yeah, in, in Roman alphabet. You will. Uh, yeah. I think the creation of a script is important, though, because it gets away from, like, I totally take your point here. But it, mm. it, it takes it away from the apostrophe, debt by apostrophe, you know, where you write in English, but just stick apostrophes everywhere to like symbolize glottal stops or, or whatever. Yeah. Whereas if you go up with your own script, you don't do that. You don't come up with like a, like a sort of half-arsed English. I don't think necessarily writing a script is, is the only or the easiest way to, to deal with that. I mean, as long as you take an honest... Um, bank of sounds then you know i think you'll avoid the the apostrophes everywhere yeah i i think it it helps i think it definitely aids that process and mm. um, I'm, I'm with you that you know it's not a necessity you can make a perfectly valid conlang without doing a script but there are definitely pros to it like like another another thing would be if you included non-english sounds yeah in your thing uh, and you think about how you would try and represent those now, you can try and represent those with English letters, like combinations of, I don't know, consonants or something. Or you could try and use foreign-ish characters, mm-hmm. um, like Unicode sort of characters. But then the problem with that uh, arises that most characters that exist already have a preset meaning. And so very often you have people that throw in like various non-English characters and then when someone who understands that re- meaning comes around, they're immediately snapped out of it. They immediately go, well, this is clearly nonsense, you know? I guess. But, I mean, a lot of letters are different in different languages already. Like, um, you know, how in, in German, the W has a V sound and the V has an F sound. Yeah, but I, I so mean... things are already different between different languages. Yeah, but I mean more like delving into the special character sort of thing. Like, because that's the thing that people will do. They will go into like, you know, like on Microsoft Word, you know, you yeah. go into that special character section and you pick something that is distinctly not English. And I see a lot of people do this. Oh, really? Um, yeah, like a lot Ugh. of people do that. Just, uh, yeah, that's, that's just silly. Right, yeah, okay, it is. It's, it's just silly. Uh, and, you know, writing a script, I think, for, for that certain type of person will really help them. Mm. Um, get away from that sort of thing. Because ev- nearly yeah, everything to, to, has to a break meaning. out of that box. To break out of that box, exactly. And also, the creation of a script in it, in and of itself is like a fascinating process. Oh, yeah, no, I, I'll accept that. I mean, it has it has sort of a, a, a fun or an aesthetic value of its own, right? And even though, it also, I would say it has a value in looking at one's culture. Because, I mean, scripts aren't just devised out of the blue. You know, people don't wake up one day and go, let's write a script. You know, it evolves from the earliest of times where people like say, like, you know, in Oum, in Old Irish, they made markings on stones. Yeah. Uh, So everything was very angular and then the script would have evolved in a sort of angular manner. Or you have the Mayans with their their sort of like, like stamps sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, or you have like Chinese with their flowing ink on paper and sort of thing. And each of these lend themselves to evolving a certain type of script. And just the process of looking into that is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. I, I Two points actually come to mind there. Go for it. Um, you say that people don't just wake up one day and, and create a script. There, I can think of one example of something fairly similar to that happening. 
Oh, okay, hold on. Let me think. Uh, in in like natural language? Yeah. Wake up one day and make a script. Okay. Hmm. I don't know. What is it? The uh, Sequoia. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce that, but he was uh, a dude who invented the che- the Cherokee syllabary. So he, like, Ch- uh, Cherokee at that time in the early 1800s, I think, didn't have a uh, written form. And he was aware, like, from in- encountering English speakers and stuff, that written language was a thing. And so he decided to make one for Cherokee. Oh, he just decided all of a sudden. Um, I mean, I don't know the exact details of the story, but yeah, I think so. It was like, oh, written language, that's a pretty cool idea. We should have that. So he went and he made one. Ha! Huh, I had no idea. That's amazing. Yeah. That's, that's I, my understanding of it anyway. And it like it, it visually, it looks quite similar to, uh, or some of the, the characters are quite similar to the Roman alphabet, but they, they don't, they don't correspond to the same, to the same sounds and things. And then there, there's some that are different as well. Wow. Yeah. Huh. There's, I, I did not know that at all. Thank you, Bill. Not not at all. It's 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 been a while since I've read about it, um, but I, I do remember reading it before, and it was it was kind of a cool story. We'll we'll link in the show notes for people yeah. to read. The the other thing I wanted to say about that when we were just talking about scripts, I think at one point in the video you do use the word alphabet to refer to scripts. Oh no! Okay, what are you going to pull me up on here? Well, an alphabet is a very specific type of script. <laughs> okay, this is true. So, for example, Chinese doesn't have an alphabet. It's a logographic system. Yes. Yeah, th- this is very true. God, Bill, I, I really, I'm really thankful that not all my <laughs> listeners are like you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, bro. <laughs> no, 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 it's cool. Yeah, you're right. If I was, to, if I was going to be a little bit more pedantic, I, I would have not used the word alphabet. Um, yeah, no, I, 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 I'm not entirely sure that you, but I, I, th- I think I remember noticing that when I watched the video. And then you've got like Arabic and Hebrew, which they have symbols for consonants, but they have different ways of indicating vowels, or sometimes they don't indicate vowels, I think. And then you've got, like, hieroglyphic systems and Korean, which has kind of compound characters, I understand. So a character will have a number of sounds involved in it, and there's a certain order you read it in and how they the different parts transform each other. Korean is actually quite interesting. I remember, like, looking at a an infographic of how to read Korean, and it was it was pretty cool. Korean is interesting. Uh, do you want to know an interesting fact about Korean? Always. At the moment, they are losing their M and N sounds in certain contexts. Huh. And their M and N sounds are uh, transforming into B and P sounds. Weird. Yeah, which is quite interesting. Like This happens all the time in terms of languages shifting. Like in America yeah. at the moment, there's, a, um, there's no distinction bete- between the word cot, C-O-T, and the word cot... C A U G H T. Yeah, and uh, that's a shift that happened there, and it's just this this particular one in Korean is quite interesting because it's it's a shift to a different form of, of consonant. You know, like it, it's it's like if if people who do know the IPA chart, it is shifting down a row, which is quite interesting. Yeah, so M is M and N are what voiced or M is. Give me a second here. Yeah. <laughs> M, M is voiced M, and N M, is its. Unvoiced partner? No, 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 no. All, all nasals are voiced. They're nasals. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. Nasals. All nasals are voiced. If and here's another interesting fact: if you don't voice a nasal, you end up with uh, Icelandic type sounds that have literally just it's just a breath. Yeah, which is okay. really cool. Like there's a word that. in Icelandic for for knife uh, called hniver, 
and you hear that knee, which is great. That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, so it's moving from a nasal to a plosive in Korean, which is which is which is super fascinating, I think. But anyhow, uh, point being, I think the my use of the word alphabet, though wrong in a pedantic sense, if I had gone into <laughs> the details, I think I would have spent about two, three minutes listing off all the things I meant under the term alphabet, you know? Well, that's what the word script is for. So yeah, that's the uh, alphabet uh, and the script issues. Anything else you picked up on watching the video? Yeah, there was one other small thing. And I mean, again, this isn't immediately relevant. Sorry, let me just close my door. Again, this isn't immediately relevant to what you're really talking about. But I think it's worth making the point that not all language is spoken. Yes, of course. Like you have sign language. Sign language. And sign language is... Like, sign languages are separate languages. They're not just signed ciphers for English. It's not like every every symbol or every movement represents a word or whatever. They have their own grammars and their own constructions. And I, I just think it's it's an interesting point to look at because sign languages are really interesting. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I, I don't think I'll be covering it <laughs> in the videos. But yeah, that's definitely a very relevant point. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you don't know sign language and I don't know sign language, so it's probably... <laughs> That, you know, maybe the first step is to learn a new language before you're doing it, which is a, a fairly big ask. Do you remember um, Do you remember the guy, the South African guy, I think it was South African, who uh, did sign language through like an official event? Wasn't it Nelson Mandela's funeral or something? Was it? Yeah. And he didn't have a clue. It like, he was just shaking his arms around. And yeah. some, somehow he managed to like, you know, get involved and, you know, obviously pass security tests <laughs> and still end up there on stage just, like, doing nonsense, like. Yeah, he, he, I think he was well known for doing stuff like that as well. He'd done it a few other times. Really? So I they knew so, about yeah. this guy? Well, like, obviously they didn't on the day, but, like, he he had, a, like, a degree of notoriety already, I think. <laughs> Isn't that brilliant? Like, like for a man like Mandela to have that guy yeah. at his funeral, like, it's just so poor. It's crazy. Um, but yeah, sign language is definitely a very uh, valid thing. I, I wonder, the term conlang, mm-hmm. does, if one were to come up with an invented sign language, would that fall under the term conlang? I see no reason that it wouldn't. Yeah. And is there any, uh, do you have any examples of sign language in fiction? Is that a thing that happens? Well, I suppose I'd make the point, first of all, that I think a lot of sign languages probably are constructed in some sense. I mean, because... You know, they, people have sat down and, and I, I would be surprised if they arose naturally in the sa- exact same way. Maybe they do. I don't know. But I would yeah. say like a lot of them are, you know, constructed the way that, you know, um, auxiliary languages are constructed languages. Yeah, I, I would imagine they'd fall in the same bracket, definitely. Um, at least at least from, from certain points of view. There are, I suppose there are places where they have, um, I think Martha's Vineyard has got uh, a, a, a sort of a spontaneously arisen natural sign language to some extent because there, were, there was a huge deaf population on Martha's Vineyard. What is Martha's vin- Vineyard? Martha's Vineyard is an island in Massachusetts which is like a, a kind of a famous sort of rich rich white people ho- holiday destination. Like the Kennedys used to holiday there and stuff. Oh right. Oh. Yeah. But for whatever reason it had like um, a high level of genetic deafness I think. And so the, there was like a, a very strong deaf culture there. Oh wow. I, I did not know that. That's really interesting. Cool. So um, that might be something worth looking up. Now, I might have got some of the details wrong, but there, I, I think there is something there. Um, yeah, the only the only example of a fictional sign language that comes to mind is that in 
some D&D settings, the drow have a sign language. And who are the drow? Sorry, the drow are evil elves, basically. Evil dark-skinned elves. With all of the wonderful problematic implications. Yeah, I was just about there. to say. <laughs> um, yeah, I, th- I think the drow have, have a drow sign language in Forgotten Realms, possibly in Galarian. Is it fleshed out, or is it just a little kind of side note? Or oh, and by I, the way, I, I would assume it's just a side note. I mean, people—I don't think people have really gone and done up any of the languages in in most gaming settings. I don't think they've really been constructed. But sign languages in fiction—that's the only example I can think of. I'd expect there are a few others. Yeah, I must look into that and see. It'll be really interesting. Um, oh, um, the Wheel of Time. One of the warrior societies in the Wheel of Time have have a sign language. It's called Hand Talk, Maiden Hand Talk. The, now, the society is called the Maidens. And is they, that fleshed out? Because that's a book. No, he, he never gives any examples of it, as far as I know. Okay, all right. But all it, right. it's just another example of, of the thing. Huh, sounds like an area rife for exploitation, you know? For sure. But yeah, so uh, do you want to talk about some uh, some trying to be evil, perhaps? Yeah, no, that the, the, he's someone who I think I've mentioned in, in previous episodes... Um, Johnny Mavel, very, very interesting author. I'm a, I'm a big fan of his. Uh, but languages do seem to be a recurring theme in his books, or at least they appear to be something he's interested in. That that comes up quite regularly. Sorry, move that there. Um, what was that? Oh, that was just the sound of of the microphone stand against the table. I just adjusted the table. I just the, the microphone. Right? That sounds hilarious. Like, <laughs> yeah, it was a good sound. <laughs> um. Yeah, so Charlie Mavely has a couple of recurring things throughout uh, several of his works. Monsters is one of them. He really likes monsters, and he makes, like, really interesting beasties. Um, he does. Yeah, he really does. Uh, socialism uh, is definitely another one of them. He likes he likes to talk about politics and Marxism in his, in his books. Um, but languages come up quite a lot as well. On the point of his socialism, though, mm-hmm. he doesn't actually, exp- like, from my reading, um, he doesn't state that his works are political in nature like he primarily he kind of states that you know they're about like the exploration of like languages and cool monsters and things and if they happen to get political because of you know that that's an interest of his then so be it um, yeah I'd, I'd say so but i mean you, you can kind of tell with a lot of his stuff that it's particularly iron council like iron council is it's about the you could argue it's about the paris commune kind of a fa- fantasy version of the paris communes um, from the the Franco-Prussian War, was it? I think. Um, anyway, some some one of the many revolutions they had in France. Um, and just to be clear for everyone here, we're talking about China Mieville. He's uh, an English author, and uh, this is the Iron Council is part of the Baslag series. Uh, yeah. And there, there's three books in it. Um, what is the other two? Perdido Street Station and the Scar is the second. The one, Scar, and Iron right? Council's so just just so everyone knows what we're on about. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, throughout his books, anyway, he language comes up quite a lot. Um, in the second book, the main character of the second book is actually a linguist. Oh, really? Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, and so, like, throughout the course of it, she learns she learns a couple new languages, and she's she's required to translate a sort of an ancient dead language as part or a, a very rare language as part of the plot. Okay. So that, you know, it's, it's quite interesting. It comes up that way, but he also describes a lot of kind of fabulously fantastic languages, um, fantastic in you know, the the fantasy sense. Mm. There's he there's one nation 
called High Cromlech, which is a nation of sentient undead. Right, and uh, their language is called Deadish. Deadish are, that's what most people know. I think the its proper name is Crazy or, or Crazy or something. Right, I was and, wondering why it was called Deadish, but yeah, okay, now I yeah. know. This is good. And they're, it's described as having a lot of silences, where the, the rhythm of the silences is part of the, is part of the language. And a lot of sounds that you can make kind of just with your, with your throat and your, and your vocal cords to facilitate undead speakers who don't have a lot of control over their lips or who, whose mouths are sewn shut or whatever. Yeah, the, the Wikipedia page said that um, it's because, yeah, they were sewn shut or their vocal cords had decayed to such an extent that they weren't capable of language as we know it. Yeah. So Which that I think is in- really cool. They've invented this other way of, of communicating audibly which involves, you know, a rhythm of silences and kind of different sounds that they can articulate. Um, but he, which, do, he does go on to say that uh, it can also be communicated not audibly. It can be communicated as well through uh, eye movement and gestures. Oh, he does. Uh, um, there we go. There's there's another description of uh, a, a sign language. Yeah, actually, yeah, that it didn't even dawn on me. I'm looking at the notes sitting right <laughs> in front of me and it just didn't even dawn on me. Yeah, he also has a sign, sign language to that, which is kind of cool. Um... There's another one. There's a race called the Handlingers who have a tactile language. They're kind of, they're hand-shaped creatures and they have a language where loads of them commune and the way that they, they touch each other and the, the way they move on each other's skin communicates information. Yeah, he describes them as sentient, parasitic, disembodied hands. Yeah. Which, which is pretty cool. Um, As I said, he makes great beasties. Yeah, that's like I haven't read his books. This is just research, me researching on the web. But even from the bits that I can get on the web, it's very clear that he loves his monsters. Mm. He loves himself some monsters, and he seems to make really good ones. He's got the Kepri, who are uh, a sexually dimorphous race, where the the males are kind of three foot long, like giant scabbards, and the females are. Uh, they've got like the bodies of human women, but with the heads, which are scab, which are like scarabs. Cool. And the the males are they're non sentient, but the women are are sentient. And they have they don't have vocal cords. They communicate through uh, chemicals, so through pheromones. Yes, yeah, chemicals. And they yeah. they click and stuff. They they I think they click their mandibles as part of it as well, which is just like, another great thing. Stepping outside the box and exploring what can be language. Now, outside of the Baslag series... Uh, but hold on, before we move away from the Baslag series, or are you moving away from China Mieville altogether? No. Okay, well, before we do that, there is, uh, when I was reading up on it, he has a two-headed race, um, I think, China Mieville. Oh, I don't think so, but go on. Oh, right, okay, well, I was reading up on his uh, notation system for some of his languages, and he has a notation system that's fractional. That's, that's for Embassy Town. That's for Embassy Town. Right, so can you explain the creatures that produce this? And then I think we should talk about the notation system because it's really interesting. Okay, so this is what I was saying outside of the Baslag series. Oh, I'm sorry, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> he has, uh, he's got this um, sort of space opera science fiction called Embassy Town. And uh, this is essentially a, a book about languages. And it might be interesting from from looking at the point of languages as, you know, his his motivation for the world building. Uh, our languages as as world building. There's an alien race in it who have two sets of of mouths or two sets of vocal cords or you know sound producing organs, and 
all of their language is produced from both of these mouths at once. So they're, they're speaking at the same time. And they're, they're not identical. They have different, they have different parts, let's say, to use a musical analogy, like say one's the upper, one's the lower, or whatever. Yeah. And the, there's a whole, whole thing about them that they, as a race, are incapable of lying. So any, they, they cannot say anything that they don't consider true. And that's kind of the, the philosophical basis of the book. Yeah. And exploring that concept. And they can, they don't understand recordings of their, of their language. They, they can only understand when it's spoken live and they can't understand people trying to say it to them uh, because it must be, it must be kind of brought from a single mind. So the, the people that can talk to them are called ambassadors and they're kind of psychically fused or something like that. Yeah, I um, think, they, are they cloned? Um, I, I can't remember if he, if he specifically says they might be, yes. Yeah. And, oh, and yeah, they, I think they are. I think they are. And they have to like, uh, yeah, their brains work together as one and they talk at the same time. Yeah, and that's and the only way that, that the the uh, the hosts, they're called, these aliens, can understand humans. Yeah. So, yeah, the way that it's, it's typeset in the book is one part of the speech will be written in small script above, like a line, and the other part will be written in small script below the line. So it looks like a fraction. Yeah, so you'll exactly. have like... M-U-N-G-H over T-A-W, and that'll be a single word in this language. Which which is really, really interesting. Kind of tough to read, I found, but... Um, yeah, it, it is. It's, you know, because you, you, it doesn't really mean anything, you know? And you yeah. can't really conceive of it as easily as you could if you just saw, you know, M-U-N-G-H-T-A-W written down sequentially. Yeah, you know, It's easier true. to understand, um, or e- easier to imagine. But it's but it's really fascinating, and mm. um, it, it's I, I like the way he did that. It, it's good the way he tried to uh, make the notation sort of alien uh, yet conceivable. Like it would have been bad yeah. if he just wrote it in in English, so to speak, because you wouldn't have got the exotic nature of what's yeah. being said. You know, it's it's a nice little kind of typographic conceit, mm. and it, and it is a relatively simple mechanism to deliver what's going on. Yeah, you know, so I, I, I props like that's really really cool on his part. Yeah, it's it's a it's a very interesting book. It got very good reviews. I don't think I liked it as much as most other people did, and I'm I'm quite a big I'm quite a big Charlie Maple fan. But it's it's worth reading, and he does a lot of other interesting things with language in it as well. Like uh, German kind of plays a bit of a part in it because there's the the universe we know is called the is it called the Immer, and you are immersed in it. And then there's this the, the way they travel outside of the universe is called the Manchmal. Oh, these are all German words. Immer yeah. means always, and manchmal means uh, sometimes. Exactly. Yeah. So it's it's kind of it's playing with that, but you know, immer and immerse are kind of blended together there. So it's giving yeah. sort of a, a double meaning, a, a bilingual pun, kind of. It's uh, it's yeah, it's it's cool. I would recommend it. Outside of uh, his novels, uh, he seems like a fascinating fascinating dude as well. He uh, he ran for a socialist party in in the UK. He. Did yeah, and he's he's a member of a new a new leftist party that that um came that that was formed after allegations of uh, abuse in one of the other British left parties. Yeah, he left that one because of that, yeah. Uh, yeah. and and formed something else. And also, he he wrote a thesis on yeah. on Marxism. I think it was Marxism, was it? It was. Yeah, I can't remember the exact topic. I think it was about Marxist economics or something. Like he's a sci-fi geek, sci-fi and fantasy geek. And a hardcore academic as well. Yeah. Um, and he just seems like the most fascinating man ever, really. Well, I don't know if he still works in works in, in academia, but... 
But it's the thing he has done. He has achieved to that level, you know? Between equal rights, a Marxist theory of international law. That's it. There you go. I knew something like between something or other, but I didn't want to. I didn't want to attempt a title just in case I really botched it up. And he's worked for Peso. He's written for Peso. He has. He wrote. Uh, did he write for Galarian? Uh, was it Galarian? Yeah, um, for the the River Kingdoms, which is one of the one of the areas in, in Galarian. He has a, an author's credit for the the guide to that area. Now I haven't read that book, but uh, I'm sure it'll be interesting. He had a big issue of Dragon Magazine uh, about a year before Dragon Magazine was cancelled, where they they started up a load of the Baslag monsters. Oh, cool! Yeah, and oh, that would be amazing and stuff. Yeah, It'd be amazing. Create like a whole host of monsters and have someone stat them up so you can kind of almost see them come to life. You know? Yeah, be awesome. There's a good segue here, Bill. I suppose if we're talking about uh, aliens that have two vocal cords, mm-hmm. we can talk a bit about uh, Larry Nivens. Puppeteers, Pearson's Puppeteers. Yeah, from Ringworld. From Ringworld, yeah. So it's the same sort of vibe, isn't it? Yeah. Now, how does it work? I think they've got, they've got like a, a, a sort of a round body and at the top there's two necks with a, a voice on either end. And they, I think they use their mouths kind of like hands and they've got eyes on them as well. So they, they can look in lots of different directions and stuff. Yeah, and th- their brains are housed in the body, as far as I remember. In the center, yeah, in between the two, he- in the b- between the two necks. That's where the brain is. Yeah. And so, so they, what- they sing from both voices, from both mouths at the same time. Yeah. So what we would like, if you, uh, I'll throw a link in the show notes for this. But what looks like their heads is more like their appendages. Yeah. Um, and their head is their body in a way. Um, and yeah, they and they've a- avian vocal cords. Yeah, it could be. It's been a while since I've read in world, but it sounds likely. There's something I, I may do a video on in the future, how birds produce sound. And it might help people who uh, want to produce sentient uh, avian races. Because mm-hmm. uh, it's fascinating stuff. They're, they're built totally differently, obviously, from how we are. Yeah, and who doesn't love bird people? And who doesn't love bird people? This is true. <laughs> <laughs> um, he describes a, the, the sounds they make as highly complex orchestral music. Huh, yeah, um, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, do you know how this works in the books? I'm fascinated to, like, do they actually produce something that sounds like human music? Uh, I think it might be a, a sort of a poetic or metaphorical kind of Right, version. it's just a metaphor, okay, I was wondering about that. Yeah, that, that there's, like, layers, there's lots and lots of layers to it, I think, is what he's getting at. Okay, because, again, Wikipedia was very uh, not forthcoming with its information on this. <laughs> um, uh, what I found really fascinating, aside from the, like, two-headedness and the avian vocal cords, uh, was the genders. I think that's really cool. They have two male and one female. Oh, right. I've forgotten that. Or yeah. maybe, maybe that isn't in the first book, because I've only read the first book. Um, so what happens is the two males are pretty much our male and female. One uh, has ovaries, one uh, donates sperm, and the female is like a non-sentient parasite, I think, um, that huh. just acts as a host for the sperm and the ovaries. Weird. Yeah, it's really weird, but I think it's a really cool setup. There's um, something similar, this is quite off topic, but there's something similar in Ian Banks' Player of Games. Bill, off topic is what we do best, <laughs> to be fair. <laughs> um, Go on, player, player of Games, did you say? Player of Games, which is one of the culture novels. Mm, mm. And the, in a, the, the main character from the culture encounters this empire who live outside, they live in like the um, Magellanic Clouds. Okay. Is that, the, the, is that how you pronounce that? They're the, yeah, Magell- I've only ever seen it written down, Magellanic whatever they're the clouds they're the small like uh, they're like dwarf galaxies that orbit the Milky Way yeah and they yeah they're humanoid but they have three genders they've uh, the male and female 
and they've got the apex, which is oh. the one in between. So I think it works that the the male impregnates the female, and then the female implants the egg in the apex. Okay, so it's kind of similar to Niven. Yeah, it's it's quite similar. Yeah. Um, but they do it the, the other way around. Is that the apex are the 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 gender that have the, are the sex that have the most power in society, and the other two are like utterly utterly oppressed. Oh really? Oh cool. Yeah. Because he he creates this like really disgustingly awful imperialist racist <laughs> empire that that is created by these by these aliens. I never realized the three genders uh, thing was a thing, so to speak. Um, it's not that common. Um, well, I remember there. I read quite a bit about it last night. I can't remember examples, really? but there's quite a bit that cropped up. You know, I suppose it's kind of like if you want to get away from two genders, three genders is kind of like your next stop. You know. Yeah. And then one gender is kind of is kind of boring. Um, <laughs> so I suppose people won't look to look on the small scale, so to speak. There's a species in Star Trek Voyager that I think have five sexes. Oh wow, that seems elaborate. Yeah, it's um, species eight four seven two. They're called. They're from a. They're from another dimension or another universe or whatever. Okay. And uh, there's there's one episode in which I, I the doctor is giving a. A lecture or something, and he mentions this that the species eight four seven two have have five sexes. And is this something that's again fleshed out? Um, I don't know if they ever specify what they are, uh, what what the five sexes are, or how it works biologically. Um, yeah, that would be interesting to see. Yeah, hold on, I'm just, I'm just checking memory alpha right now. <laughs> okay, cool, go for it. No, it doesn't really explain it. No, just something that's a side note again. Yeah. But then again, so much of the Star Trek universe can can be chalked up to a side note. Oh yeah, large, vast, vast swathes of it. Bill, we can't discuss languages without discussing Klingon opera because <laughs> it is it is amazing. Klingon, the Klingons are amazing, and uh, that opera is quite amazing as well. I only looked up a tiny bit of it, and it was a really poor recording. And then it was it was kind of the recitative part of the opera is where I started. So I lost interest very quickly. Is it worth watching? I, I watched, uh, I must have watched maybe 10, 15 min- minutes of it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I liked it. It was very good. Um, I found it really interesting, really fascinating. I okay. think if it weren't in Klingon, uh, I don't think I would have liked it. <laughs> <laughs> I the, the novelty of listening to Klingon being sung and listening to that story that was invented in that opera kept me going quite a bit. It's a bit of novelty right. and it's fun, you know. It's good, it's good. And by the way, just for the listeners, the Klingon opera we're referring to is Oo, um, which is pronounced entirely incorrectly on my part because it's meant to be glottal stop, then a U sound, then a glottal stop, which I can't do. I'm just going to call it Oo. Do you want to hazard a, an attempt so at, at pronouncing it? My my attempt at that would be something like, okay, hold on, you look it up there. Look up because I I don't know the IPA as well as you do. What is the U sound? Is it an U uh or is it a U? Okay, give me two seconds. Uh, that that's actually a very good point. Um, my book, I, I want to get this right. Uh, even if we try and get it right, we're not going to get it right. Those glottal stops are impossible. Uh, give me two seconds here. Yeah, U. It is an ooh. It's an ooh. So it's something sound. like ooh. Yeah, so, something like that, I suppose. It's it's majorly yeah, difficult to so, pronounce. Ooh. Something like that. 
So what, what's actually going on is that you, you close your glottis, your throat, <laughs> as the first syllable, and then you say the letter U, and then coming out of the U, you, you close your glottis again. Like, it's really tricky. Like, that is some, like, dynamic throat movement going on right there. Uh, so I'm going to leave correct pronunciation totally the bill. <laughs> I am going to say just ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, yeah, the, the opera is based on uh, a story called Callus the Unforgettable. Do you uh, do you know about the story, Bill? Vaguely, I remember seeing an episode of of Next Generation where the story was mentioned. It's he's like he he's kind of the messianic figure in in, in Klingon. Culture. Yeah, basically the story is about Callus, mm-hmm. who is our protagonist, um, and he has a brother called uh, what's his name uh, called Morath. Okay, so there's Callus and Morath. And then there's a tyrant called Molor. Okay. And essentially the tyrant, um, what's called, convinces uh, Morath, the brother of our protagonist, to portray his family mm-hmm. uh, in order for, like, I-, I think in order to get riches or to raise him up or something like that. The brother does this and ends up killing the father, which, which okay. is not very good at all. Our protagonist pursues his brother after he committed the act of, uh, act of treason against his family. Uh, yeah. to a volcano uh, and they fight it out the brother throws himself into the volcano and then Callus, our, our protagonist forges the very first bathlet uh, from the fires of the volcano using his own hair okay <laughs> which is just it's so ridiculously Klingon it's just brilliant it's pretty metal it's really metal. And then Especially they go the in- hair bit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and then they go in, uh, Callus goes down to the underworld. He finds the souls of his brother and his father. He all is forgiven. Um, and they, he, he does the mock bar. Do you know what the mock bar is? I do not. The mock bar is like, I, I think it's like a ritual fighting dance type thing. It features a lot in the next generation, but he teaches them the first mock bar basically. Uh, and that allows their souls to escape the underworld. And then Korath, the guardian of the underworld, the devil figure, is insanely annoyed by this. He's like, hey, listen, yo, my souls are gone. What's this about? Uh, so he makes a trip up uh, up to the earth. And essentially there's a big, a big well, battle. Up to, up to the Klingon. Up, up to, yeah, up to the Klingon homeworld. Um, and essentially a big battle ensues. Uh, a lot of what's called honorable deaths. Callus falls in love throughout the way to, to a, a, a Klingon female called Lady Lucara. And they made, there's a sex scene where they make love, they make violent love in the blood of their em- enemies post-battle. Um, and it's just class. It's just so Klingon. It's brilliant. <laughs> and at the same time, though, it's very opera as well. It, it has all the teams human opera does, you know, like gore and death and betrayal. So it's kind of, it's, it's nicely, it's nicely worked that way, I think. <laughs> All the teams that maybe Wagnerian opera has. Yeah, well, okay, this is true. Yeah, this is very true. <laughs> I don't remember there being a huge amount of... Well, I suppose there, there's, there's some sword fighting and stuff in, in uh, Don Giovanni, isn't there? Well, no, but a lot of opera is Actually, quite... Actually, the end of Don Giovanni is metal as hell. What happens at the end of Don Giovanni? Oh, have you never seen it? Uh, I have not seen it, no. So at the beginning, um, Don Giovanni seduces, or in, in some interpretations of it, he rapes uh, Donna Maria, I think her name is. Okay. And uh, then he he kind of is pursued by her father, and she and she doesn't know who it is. She doesn't she doesn't know who who the attacker is. And her, her father comes and chases him away, and uh, Don Giovanni kills him. 
Okay. And that's fine. And then Don Giovanni goes on and, you know, is having the crack. And is having the crack. <laughs> well, like, he is. Like, he's going around and, and generally being a terrible person. Uh, good, and good. At, at the end, uh, a statue of Donna Maria's father, the, who's called the Commodore, he, a, a statue comes to life and drags Don Giovanni to hell. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So it's pretty metal. That That's, yeah, that's pretty metal. It happens a lot in opera, man. It's it, like, there's a lot of dark themes in opera. And a lot of a lot of blood and a lot of fighting and yeah. But there's also a lot of rom com. <laughs> yeah, like uh, was it opera comique? Um, that's very rom com, isn't it? Could be. I'm I'm not I'm not good up on the terms. Uh, I'm sorry, any opera singers who might be subscribed to us. Um, <laughs> if I'm getting this wrong, <laughs> but if you are an opera singer and and you are subscribed to us, do try and source the score to the Klingon opera. And if you want, record uh, a couple of arias from it and send it to me. I would be, I would love that. <laughs> Regardless of the plot and things like that, there's a couple of really interesting things in Klingon as a language. And one of the most interesting ones I found, now this is according to Wikipedia, is that they have no uh, Valor plosives. Which are they now? Now, Valor plosives, this is really interesting, are like the K and sort of G sounds. The hard K and the hard G. So that's where you raise the back of your tongue to your palate. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So like ka and ga. Yeah. Um, the, which which like which is fine, but the only thing that I found like immediately problematic is that the language is called Klingon with a K. You yeah, know? That, that could be a like a, a human appellation for them. Yeah. So it's but no, not. Hold on. Isn't isn't there isn't the the main character of the opera called Kalas? Uh, well, I'm pronouncing it like that, but according to the phonology of of Klingon. Uh, there is no K. The word Klingon is written uh, T-L-H-I-N-G-N. Right. So it's like, uh, it's hard to describe. It's kind of like a big throaty sort of uh, thing. It's not actually a true K sound. So it's it's a kind of a glottal sort of thing then, or kind of a... Like a yeah, I'd have to look up the exact... Like Klingon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Something like that. It's not a K in the English sense. And that's really unusual for a language not to have any Valor plosives at all. Yeah. So that, that just, I thought that was a very interesting um, point. And who, the guy who came up with the language, it's a pretty ballsy move, I thought, to come up with the phonology and then disregard the main sound, uh, you know, in that species uh, title. Yeah. And then they also have, uh, there's a couple of Indian influences in the language, which is nice, I thought. Okay. Uh, they have a thing called the uh, voiced retroflex plosive. And essentially what that is, it's a D sound, except that uh, you curl your tongue backwards in your mouth. Yes. And, and okay. say D. So if you like try and, if you try and imitate um, Indian speakers, your tongue will naturally do this. And again, I would have immediately thought it's a very unklingon type sound. It, it, it's quite, I always thought, I always think of it as quite liquidy, that sort of retroflex sort of thing. Um, so the guy who came up with Klingon, uh, I think he did a really great job with the inventory. Really cool. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so it's a fascinating language. Um, and I also learned that there's uh, about a dozen or so fluent speakers in the world, <laughs> <laughs> which is great. There was one guy, a member of, I think it's called the Klingon Language Institute, who mm-hmm. raised his son to be bilingual, English and Klingon. Yes, I remember reading about this, but it, it just it didn't stick because there's nothing to talk about in Klingon. Yeah, because, yeah, it, obviously, like, they came up with, like, the, the classic example is that there is a word for bridge, but that refers to bridge of a starship and not <laughs> bridge over water. Right. You know, so there's a whole load of problems. Like that, but, but apparently, if you are a skilled speaker, 
it's cumbersome, but you can do everyday conversation. Huh. Which is which is really cool. Part of me really wants to go and learn Klingon now. <laughs> it's cool that someone has gone and and done that. I mean, I wasn't particularly keen on on what I heard of the opera. I'm not a huge opera fan as is, but it's it's cool that someone went and did that, and it's it's cool that the language is developed enough to tell that complex story. Yeah, it's a very complex story. I made a pretty like um haphazard attempt at uh, defining mm. the story. I'll, I'll link in the show notes to this anyways. Um, it's great that, that Klingon can do that. And I, I found it I found it interesting. It was an interesting listen. So another point that I'd like to bring up is, so remember how in one of the previous episodes we discussed alt history as a type of world building? We did. There is uh, an interesting project that I came across a good few years ago now, and I, I looked up again uh, just the other day, uh, called Il Bethesad which is a collaborative con world. And it has its origin in uh, Conlang. It was created by a guy from New Zealand called Andrew Smith, who wanted to make uh, the hypothetical language that you would have if the, the main language in Britain wasn't Germanic, but was a fusion of Latin and the pre-existing Celtic languages. Oh, cool. Yeah. So it's it's it was you know what would happen if if say Rome had kind of persisted or Roman culture had persisted in Britain and there hadn't been uh, a, a Germanic migration I think was something like that so it has elements both of you know Latin and you know therefore Italian and Spanish and Romanian and all that and Welsh and the Brythonic languages that are now extinct and Cornish which has been revived and stuff like that so that's that's a really cool idea and he's created this um, alternate history to support and to give context and, and house this this conlang that he's made. And it's gone into this big thing that pe- people have done similar stuff, that the, the, the whole world now has this fictional history up to the present day from Roman times and the different languages that have evolved in there as a result of these different circumstances. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, like there's one... Um, there's... I think he's something similar in Polish where it's... it's there's a sort of a... Slavic Latinate language that is is different to what Polish is now, or something like that. Cool. Uh, is, is this the same fella, or the same the same people? It's it's the same setting, uh, but I think right. like, lots of different people have made these. Cool. That's really interesting. Yeah, um, it's worth the, looking up. The what's called uh, it'd be interesting to look up that phonology because if you're going to incorporate Welsh sounds into um, a sort of English, I use that term loosely because obviously it's not English. That that's really interesting because like a lot of the Welsh sounds are s- just so foreign, so exotic, and so difficult for us to produce right now. Like the the double L. Yeah, like they have a lot of like bizarre. They're called laterals, like L type sounds. Yeah, um, and a lot of kind of like hissy things, and they have a couple of voiceless things as well. It's just a very it's a fascinating language. Like I strongly suggest people like uh, read into it. It's great. Mm. Um, but incorporating that into English, that that sounds like really interesting. A really interesting endeavor. Well, it's, it's not really incorporated into English. It's instead of English. So, like, there is no Anglic or Anglo-Saxon in it. It's it's Latin and and Brythonic Celtic. Yeah, sorry, should I say, yeah, but incorporating Welsh into, like, a, a Latin thing. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's, it's quite, quite, be quite an interesting concept. I, I, just on the topic of Welsh, I have this kind of picture in my head of a, a conlang I'd quite like to do, which would be have some kind of Welsh sounds and have some kind of what I imagine Mesoamerican to be like, kind of like Aztec languages and, and Mayan languages, the way you see them written down. Really? 
Yeah, well, like, you know, like TL as as final as final sounds and stuff like that. I think it could be like a really cool sounding language. Yeah, this is true. Um, why why those? Just 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 for coolness. Just because it's it's a really unobvious mixture to make. It's a really unobvious pairing, and I, yeah. I think that they they could complement each other in fun ways. Or they could end up as a total train wreck. <laughs> to be fair. Well, I mean, they could, but there's no... I don't think there's any real um, objective way to, to decide that. <laughs> yeah, other than just doing it. This is true. This is yeah, true. I, mean, I mean, like, you know, no matter what the result is, it's, it's you know, I'm, some people think some languages sound horrible and that's okay. <laughs> Do you know what my... I think my tactic uh, for doing a conlang would be, um, would be, like I pointed out in the video, is start with sounds. Mm-hmm. So what I would do is I would go through the IPA and I think what I'd do is I, I'd select the, all the sounds I can produce easily. Yeah. Uh, and then use, and then from that, use that as my kind of like bulk um, sort of thing. And then from that, draw a very select number of sounds because like, I advocate yeah. in the video less is more sort of thing. So I actually don't know in terms of like, I, I wouldn't be able to say for my conlang, oh, it's a mixture of this and this. It would just be something that innately works with my biology. Yeah. Which I think is really cool. And it's definitely one way of guaranteeing uniqueness because everyone's mouth is set up a little bit differently. And like, you know, some people can roll their oars. Some people can't. Yeah. Uh, some people might have a particularly dynamic glottis and can do loads of glottal stops, like pronouncing the Klingon's opera title. Um, yeah. You know, so I think that's a really interesting way of doing things as well. Um, I actually, I did have a friend uh, on my master's who was, who was very interested in phonology and things and he he had quite a well-articulated glottis <laughs> he did he, he was able to 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 use it quite quite well you know quite precisely the thing i'd say there is you know i'd be i'd be wary of just trying to you know look at the ipa and make the sounds and then see which ones you do i'd just say make a lot of sounds and then see where they are in the ipa because any sounds you can make is going to be valid and there's going to be variation between speakers anyway so you know, it's not like, see if you can make this specific sound they have in Welsh. I mean, just like make a make a sort of a throaty H-E-L. And that's a valid sound, even if it isn't exactly the same as what's in Welsh. That's that's very true. I think for me, like with most of my world building, it's for an educational endeavor. Yeah. Um, so I think for me, I would be conlanging to, well, yes, come up with a conlang, but to also learn about human language. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for me personally, it would be very important to be able to define each and every sound so I learn about them. Mm-hmm. But that's perfectly valid. I think other people should definitely follow that advice. I think it's good, good solid advice. Um, yeah. So th- that was the. I just think that's an interesting. I, I just think that you know an interesting point considering we were talking about alt history as world building before, and here's a very clear example of it that also combines with conlanging. And there's kind of, I can think of two examples of the opposite, which isn't isn't exactly world building, but they're they're interesting experiments. The writer Paul Anderson, a science fiction yeah. writer, yeah. he wrote an essay in the 80s, I think, called The Uncleftish Beholding, which mm-hmm. uh, we can link to in the show notes, and it's a fascinating read. It's an essay about atomic theory, but only using words, only using English words of Germanic origin. Right, so no borrowed words. So no, well, not even no borrowed words. I mean, anything that is descended from a Latin root or a Greek root or anything else is out. Is out. It's just purely words of germanic and anglo-saxon origin so you can't say atomic theory because atom is comes yeah that comes from greek tom is divide ah is unable to or you know without dividing 
So that means that which cannot be divided. Mm. So instead he calls it uncleft. Exactly, yeah. So instead of being atomic theory, it's the uncleftish, and then I can't remember how beholding is derived, but it, you know, it makes a little bit of sense. And I'd, I'd, I'd really recommend people to check it out. I mean, if you if you know a little bit, you know, if you know your periodic table and you know your kind of basic chemistry and physics, you can actually figure out a lot of it, even when it's written in quite alien terms. Um, yeah, and like, given that it's a scientific paper, vast swathes of it are, or, or a mock scientific paper, uh, vast swathes of it are derived from Greek, like, you know, hydrogen. Um, yeah. Helium, lithium, all of the, like all the elements. So we have um, to come up with new words for all of that. For all of it, yeah. And it's 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 interesting. Some of them are non non intuitive. You wouldn't expect that to be what what the word literally means. You know, when when translated from the Greek, when the etymology is examined. But yeah, it's it's cool. Yeah, like the the word for hydrogen is uh, water stuff. Yeah, and I get that. That's fine. H two O. Get that. Totally cool. Hydro is water. Yeah, hydroelectric ex- power, etc. Yeah, exactly. Oxygen, though, I think if I if I remember this correctly, is sour stuff. Sour stuff, yeah. And I I don't for the life of me I can't understand why it's sour. Well, I mean, I guess that's just what oxy means in in the Greek. Okay, yeah, I hadn't considered that. I was just thinking intuitively as an English speaker. Um, oh no, no, like it's it's he he directly translates them, and this is interesting because he has to resort to cultural concepts for some of it because. Um, uh yeah oxy oxygen i'm looking at here on wiktionary um oxy means sharp and i think that implies like um acidic as well so it's sour okay oh cool yeah or so, something like that um for uranium uranium is like the the what that means is uranus the giant from from the the underworld in in greek mythology so in the uncleftish beholding uranium is called emir stuff because Emir is a similar, a giant who lives in hell. Oh, wow. In Germanic mythology. Yeah. Emir stuff. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, Y-M-I-R. Um, yeah, definitely recommend people check this out. It's, uh, I, I read the first couple of paragraphs. It's it's very, very cool. And the other example I have is not quite as well developed or anything, but there is an Australian composer called Percy Granger. Yes. Who was around in the early 20th century and um, wrote some quite interesting music. Uh, was an interesting guy in a lot of ways. It had um, very unusual for the time ideas about music and about kind of freeing music from its constraints. Um, but he also preferred to speak in what he called English, which was, again, English without the words taken from, from other language families, without the influence of other language families. So instead of uh, considering himself a composer, he was a tonesmith. I find that, like, interesting, but ridiculously pretentious. I just think it's a great word. Oh yeah, no, the word's fine. The, the like the concept of doing that just because is just it's a bit it's a bit patriotic, you know. It's a bit kind of like oh well, you know, it wasn't just because. Oh, why not? Because he was really racist. Oh right. Oh yeah. Oh no, hang on. Oh, I read this. Um, he he said that English was blue-eyed English. I think something like that. Yeah. He yeah he just seems like not the nicest fellow. So, like, it wasn't just that he was racist against people who weren't white. He was, like, only Northern Europeans, only people of Anglo-Saxon descent. So, like, Mediterraneans weren't properly white in his view. I mean, he was he was not a great guy yeah, by I mean, any like, stretch of the imagination. Like, it's incredible that human beings are able to think like that. You know what? It's yep. just... It's just, I don't, I don't understand. But uh, aside from his racism, again, it's another interesting concept, looking at a language had it not borrowed all of these things. Mm-hmm. 
But I mean, you know, it's it's kind of ridiculous because, you know, some of those German words are going to have, like, German existed at a certain point, you know, some sort of proto-Germanic, but that's going to have loads of influence from loads of other places. So you're taking a, an, an entirely arbitrary point at which purity begins. Yeah, there's an infinite regress um, yeah. that can go on. Yeah, definitely. And this um, is what I was saying earlier about, you know, the, the speaking in RP. I mean, the, there's no such thing, in my view, as proper English. That's, you know, that's an inherently classist and racist way of looking at it. And it's it's also it's RP is constructed. RP is a very recent thing. And right. This we, is re- this is received pronunciation. Yeah, which which we were talking about earlier. Did that? Did we talk about this while recording? Yes, I think so. Oh, did we? Okay. In that case, never mind. <laughs> Go on. Uh, yeah, like so. Received pronunciation is is quite a recent development in English. So it's if if we look at um like how we think that Shakespeare should be performed is is this real posh voice. But there's a movement um, in the last few years to do it in what's called the original pronunciation, yeah. which isn't posh at all. It's, it sounds more like like Northern England, which is kind of considered to be the the, the less posh, uh, the less posh end, um, or it sounds in some parts like Irish accents, yeah, rather it, than you know what we think of posh English people sounding like. Yeah, it definitely doesn't sound posh. This is true. I've I've read this before. Yeah, um, we, we I think we've elevated Shakespeare up to a to a point where Shakespeare never was at. Um, you know, well, I, I, we've created the idea that speaking like that is elevation, which is stupid. Like it's not elevation; it's just a way of speaking. It's it's just a way of speaking. It happens to be associated yeah. with a certain kind of. These are all artificial constructs. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but uh, as well, isn't Shakespeare? Wasn't Shakespeare's plays considered to be a uh, very lowbrow uh, in the day? Well, they were. They were popular entertainment. Yeah. 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 This is true. It's amazing how much popular entertainment becomes classics after enough time. Like. Mm. Um, Pride and Prejudice, very pop stuff. Like, oh, I've never read it, but um, yeah, I've I've only ever I've only ever seen the plays live. Right, um, but it's it's very very pop, and even watching it, you can kind of be like, if Cosmopolitan uh, was around back in the day, <laughs> they would have turned out something like Pride and Prejudice. But given enough time, everything becomes a classic, you know. Yeah, well, no, the things that are good enough to become classics are remembered. I also do think there is a huge swathe of people that put an onus on tradition. And if it's old, it's classic, therefore it's good. Uh, yeah. Without ever really looking at and analyzing things. Yeah, sure. But I mean, if it's bad, it's just not going to be remembered. So it won't be in a position to be considered as classic by people later on. You know, when people say, oh, you know, music was so much better in the 60s and 70s, they're not talking about little Jimmy Osmond. Yeah. <laughs> you are you are famously, uh, what you call, outspoken on this concept. <laughs> Man, I, I, it, it winds me. But anyway, that, that's a discussion for another day. <laughs> Bill, that winds up Bill. And another thing that winds up Bill uh, is just in the general sense is nostalgia. No, if it's any, not, if it's any, not just nostalgia. It's, it's just like people fetishizing nostalgia. If anyone wants to post some comments, being all nostalgic on the subreddit, I would appreciate it. Go for it. <laughs> and tag Bill in every single one of them. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, linguistic purism. Nonsense. Yeah, it doesn't, it, you know, it, it's... There's no way to justify it, really. Yeah, it's interesting to look at in terms of a world-building uh, mm. point of view and a conlang point of view, but I wouldn't place too much um, emphasis on it. And I would, I would like to point out here, I think there's a difference between, you know, linguistic purism and then disputing certain ways of speaking. Like, people say, people get annoyed when literally is used figuratively rather than literally. But, you know, that's, that's part of a discussion about how, or you can frame that as part of a discussion about how language should be used, as opposed to being like language can never change. There's, there's different ways of approaching it. 
yeah, the, yeah, it's 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 a complex sort of um, yeah. argument. Yeah, definitely. So um, what I'm saying is, I'm you know, I'm not being linguistically prescriptive, but I I think there, you can still be you can still critically analyze how language is used and and debate and discuss things. Um, do you know, actually a thing that pops in my head? Um, uh, I'm half German, mm-hmm. uh, so my father's German. Um, and I'm basing this on my father. So this is one person's view of things, right? So I could be totally wrong. But it seems to me that German prides itself on trying to be very linguistically pure. I know there's problems with that word, but I think German likes being very German and doesn't like borrowing terms in. And maybe this is only a modern thing, um, but it's Yeah, no, I, I see what you mean. Like, I mean, and I don't think... Like, you can use pure in this sense because that is how they are framing it. So I, I don't think there's there's anything to to dispute there, that they are trying to preserve a certain thing. Yeah, like, because there was, there was um, two things. Uh, there was uproar uh, in Germany, I, again, according to my father, uh, when they brought in a thing called the Neu-Deutsch-Rechschreibung. Uh, the spelling reforms. The spelling reforms, right. And yeah. what they did is they tried to English it up a little bit. So um, you'd have words that uh, originally had, like, say, two L's in them, suddenly had three L's. Yeah, uh, because of how words were built, and they got rid of the beautiful Sharfus S. They they got rid of it in some context. It still exists, just in 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 specific usages. Yeah, no, this is true. Yeah, I'm making generalized statements. Like that yeah. was a thing that suffered uh, in it, and uh, there was uproar amongst German people. Apparently, they were like, "How can you do this to our beautiful language? Like making it so English um, and things like that." And then also when when the internet became a thing, and one could download stuff. Uh, the Germans needed a word for that, and they settled upon uh, download, <laughs> and, and the people didn't like that. And they so just, the verb is to zu downloaden. To downloaden, and like if you download something, ich habe etwas downgeloadet. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just it. And maybe there is a more German word, but I've only ever heard people use that word. And it just it, uh, being part German, it kind of saddens me a little bit yeah. that they would just 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 go for the English, you know. I mean, I, I can understand attending to maintain an idea of purity in the face of something like English being this huge, overwhelming international force, and yeah. that you want to preserve identities. That that you know, that's that makes sense, and that's that's a different kind of thing than saying, oh, you know, this this is the proper way to speak it. Because in Germany, the dialects are still quite strong. Like there's people who speak Shabian, and there's people who yeah. speak, you know, uh, Kolch as well. Is that, is yeah, or speaking? Bayern, and there's a whole lot of dialects. Yeah, yeah, yeah and the, the dialects are quite, are quite strong, I think. So they exist, and yeah, but it, it makes sense to kind of preserve a language against something that's so hegemonic as English. Um, yeah, I think that's that's a slightly different discussion. Oh, I know, but it's, it's just a point worth making, and it just popped yeah. in my head. What they do in Iceland is really interesting. I was I was um, talking to a was it a Danish? Yeah, I was talking to a Danish guy a few weeks ago um, at a gaming event, and somehow languages came up, and he had spent some time in Iceland. And most of the other countries in Scandinavia, they'll just use English words when a new concept arises and the English word is gaining kind of international usage. Mm. But in Iceland, they have a council that decides what the word to translate this new concept is. So in the 80s, computers were the thing. You know, people started talking about computers. Yeah. And in, you know, Denmark and Norway and Sweden, they say computer. Okay. They have a different word in Icelandic which I'm going to look up now. I should have done this already. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. I, um, I, I, are you going to try and pronounce this word? Um, yeah, sure. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Uh, Icelandic being famously hard to pronounce, but that's okay. Give it a shot. 
I'll give it a shot. Uh, just just edit around this. Um, I, will. I will. I will. Don't worry. I'll make you. Uh, I'll make you sound like you are the world's best speed typer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So yeah, they they have this council or something that comes up with uh, new words for new concepts, and they don't necessarily like um, directly translate. Okay. The Icelandic word for computer is tolva. Tolva, okay. Which literally means number prophetess. <laughs> really? So, like, a woman who, like, <laughs> sees the future, but with numbers. That's brilliant. Yeah. That is class. I, thumbs up Iceland. I think that's a great idea. But, of course, like, we, we do this um, kind of badly in Irish, because, you know, what you said about the German words, just using Germans, just using English words. We used to have a lot of words in Irish that have now been replaced by just, like, English loanwords. Yeah. Like, um, phone, like, as you know, that you make a phone call with, used to be called gohan, and now it's usually just called phone. Yeah. And And car used to be glushton, and now it's just car. And car is an interesting one, because glush is a sort of an old verb to indicate motion. So glushton means move thing, or motor. It literally just means motor. And it's such such a nice word. And it's a shame you lose it, like, you know? Mm. Irish is particularly bad uh, for that, I think for inheriting so many uh, English words. And it's a great shame. It's a great shame overall that the Irish language is not really a thing. Sorry, Irish speakers. Well, I mean, it, it is it is endangered, definitely. It's definitely endangered. And it's a beautiful language. Like, mm. um, all the Celtic languages, like Irish and Welsh, and then, uh, is it Gaelic up in Scotland? Uh, Scottish Scot- Gaelic, yeah. Scottish Gaelic. Manx all those lang- and Cornish and Breton. They're, they're the six. All, all of those languages have just this beautiful sound to them and um, like orally they're wonderful wonderful languages mm. and it's a real shame that they're they're dying and the one that this is the one that really winds me up in irish is okay. the word f- for headquarters how do you know these words like at what point in your schooling did you need to write down the word headquarters in irish i have no idea i have no <laughs> idea but i remembered because it annoyed me so much okay the word is kian kapru okay kian being head and kapru being quarter quarter and what's annoying about that? Oh, it's just because it's English in Irish? No, because quarter in, like, kahu literally means one-fourth, as in a quarter of something. Okay, right. But that's not what quarter means in headquarters. It okay. means quarters as in, like, your quarters on a ship, your, your place. Yeah, I, I So they, think... they've directly translated it, but they've directly translated it wrongly. <laughs> <laughs> I think we need to uh, establish some sort of council, um... In Ireland. <laughs> and you could just do it so easily. You could just call it Kianoris, which would mean, which would be a direct translation. It would mean exactly the same thing. So, Kian means head. Yeah. Oris means? Habitation, abode, house, or building. There you go. So, like, a, a go. building where stuff is, is happening. So, a bus Oris is, like, the big bus station in Dublin. Kjol Oris means concert hall. Yeah. Um, boy. Boy, do we suck at our own language. <laughs> Edgar? Yes. I have a point to bring up here that combines three threads that we've had. Oh my god, look at this, go on. Iceland. Iceland. Conlanging. Okay. And music. Right. The band Sigur Ross. Okay, I know that they're they're an Icelandic band, are they? They're an Icelandic band, and I they sing some of their music, like some of their lyrics, in an invented language called Hopelandic. Do they? Yep. Yeah. Now, I don't know how fully fleshed out the language is, but... Huh. 
That's yeah. amazing. There you go. Look, look at you tying all the loose ends together. <laughs> the only problem is half of it's going to be cut and it'll make no sense. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so, Bill, uh, you have a you have a couple more things to say uh, on the notes, I think I take it. Um, yeah, just uh, two two remaining points, uh, or well, one remaining point, and then something for the listeners. So we, we you mentioned auxiliary languages in your video. Now, auxiliary languages are constructed languages that are made to aid international communication, or to act as a kind of an intermediary language between people who don't share a common language naturally. Yeah. And the most famous of these is probably Esperanto. Yeah, or Interlingua, I would say, as well. Interlingua as well, possibly, yeah. And so Esperanto is is one of these quite famous ones. William Shatner is a fluent Esperanto speaker and is he starred he? in Esperanto language movies. Get out! That's br- yep. I did not know that. That is that's, brilliant. That's a fact. But um, there's an older <laughs> one from the 1800s called uh, Volapük or something like that. I don't know the exact pronunciation. And it was made by a German Jesuit priest, I think. Okay. In Esperanto, the word the word Volapük means gibberish. Oh, that's brilliant. So it's like saying, oh, like, you know, that's, that's all Greek to me, or that's, you know, that's just double Dutch. You'd say it's Volapük. I don't, it doesn't make any sense. That's fantastic. <laughs> Conlang this. I know. <laughs> that's awesome. Cool. Nice one, man. So uh, will we go on to this listener challenge? Yeah, please do. Tell me about this listener challenge. I love so, the way you're taking initiative here and you're so like, no, I, I'm totally going to set up challenges. Like, it's not your podcast, <laughs> Red Gegger. I'm just going to like, I'm going to take the reins of this horse and go with it. I'm just trying to be helpful. <laughs> You're doing a great job. What's this listener challenge? So we've got a very um, active and a very interesting uh, listener base. Lots of people from the world building subreddit. And I'd like to put to them to conceive of a concept for a language which is not audible or not written. Okay. So like the things we had earlier, like the tactile languages or the chemical languages right. or like sign languages or stuff. I'd like to see what people, what ways people can come up with to give an actual method of communication, like a linguistic method of communication that isn't spoken or written. So maybe something psychic, you know, you know, flesh it out a little or look at things like uh, how bees communicate in hives and how they tell where, uh, where sources of the nectar that's what these collect isn't it <laughs> I think so yeah <laughs> where, where the nectar is and you know things like that or you know think outside the box and I'd love to see what people can come up with two things yeah one thing is I think later on tonight I am going to be handed a paper on com- honeybee communication cool so I might if, if this is actually a thing I can't remember if it is or not I'll chuck that in the show notes just for sure. to know because uh, apparently it's meant to be fascinating stuff and the second thing is, boy, Bill, you really, like, start off in the deep end with your listener challenges. Well, I'm not asking them to, like, flesh out the whole thing. Or just, like, come up with an idea and, you know, give, give you know, don't just say, oh, it's it's psychic. You know, look a bit more into it or, or come up with a new concept. No, yeah, no, this is true, but the very nature is, it's a very, it's a great challenge. It'd be great to see posts. It's just, like, you don't start them off easy, Bill, do you? <laughs> <laughs> no, but do, do leave some comments. That'd be really interesting to see what, um what people will will say uh, about it. And I'm sure Bill will reply to most, if not all. Well, depending if we get like a thousand of them, I can't, but I'll do my best. <laughs> Bill will reply to most, if not all. <laughs> if he doesn't reply, email Bill. I'll leave you his email address in the show notes. <laughs> you absolutely will not.
Okay, do you want to let's talk some languages? I think we should. All right, I'm currently want... talking English. 